You probably know by now that what's keeping me busy during the pandemic is a lot of gaming. Today I'm talking about my favorite RPGs. Welcome to Panelism, the podcast where we talk about the comic books and graphic novels worth having on your shelf, and sometimes RPGs. I'm Todd A. Taylor Trask. Hey. And by <laughs> RPG, you mean red, purple, uh, green. green. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Classic primary colors, red and purple and green. That's right. Um, yes, of course, we're talking about role-playing games. I <laughs> It may surprise people to know we go into those intros unscripted sometimes. <laughs> That's a shock. I, I, I don't want anybody thinking <laughs> that. We, we carefully write. We, it takes a week for us to write each intro. Oh, Todd. my gosh. It's, do not let a, them think otherwise. The whole show, in fact, is so heavily scripted. It's, oh, God, it's, yes. Every, yeah. You may not know it at home, but we have every single word and pause. It's all oh. accounted for. All of it. Even these interjections. Even the laughter. It's all It's all in the script. Bingo. And we rehearse yep. sometimes six, seven hours a day. It's, uh, it's grueling. It's a lot of we, work. It's a lot of we work. We do it for Perfect. you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah, there I, are my some pod- of- but wait, wait, wait. There are some podcasts <laughs> that are that way. That's the sad part. It's like there are some podcasts that are so finely, like every little nuance and breath. I'm like, you guys have oh, way yeah. too much time on your hands. Uh, it's not it, for us. I think it's the Wondery Network. Have you ever listened to their shows? Uh, I think they, so. One, once or twice. They have a series. They actually had. A, they actually like. I, I I don't know if it was pandemic related, but I had to chop a bunch of series and like. Um, stop producing them. They had a a huge, vast number of series that were like the most soporific things I've ever heard. <laughs> soporific. They were. There's a word. Yeah, <laughs> but it was it was like it was like the you know the satire of public radio of in 1934, uh, Martin oh, Freeman killed everyone in his household. Um, you know, <laughs> Jean's oh. going to take over the diagnosis here. Please note, she's not a psychiatrist. Um, it, it was just, it, they were, I mean, I actually listened to a bunch of them because they were easy to just put on in like zone, but, um, yeah, I was not surprised when many of them got axed. Uh, you're getting, no uh, you're intended. getting dangerous close to V, uh, to the BBC. Um, what was my, oh yeah. The, my, my fake the Genesis. I was, I, I was, I was about, yeah, I was about to, and I still can, and it can happen anytime. I was about to record a sort of a cliche BBC style show called the prognosticators. And it was going to be a sort of my, um, my uh, tribute to the the band Genesis, and it's like you know prognosticators, you know get oh, it prog rock. <laughs> no, but I was gonna I was gonna basically do all that you know those same like coming up on the prognost uh, on the prognosticators, <laughs> a, a, a extended conversation with Stephen Hackett, the guitar player from Genesis from 1975 through 1979. We'll be back after this. Just that whole I mean that. I'll tell you this: those podcasts are are actually really nice to fall asleep to because it's just oh yeah to use your word soporific, um, soporific oh, or soporific. I haven't used that. I, word I said in so soporific. Long. I don't know if that's my like that's a remnant of southern a southern accent. Um, ah, because now that. that you say soporific, it does sound more like that's probably how it's supposed to be pronounced. Um, it's like I when people know. pronounce it's like when people pronounce pro publica and it drives me nuts. I'm like it's pro publica. Oh, Do not say publica like it's a. 
It sounds like too many things that aren't news Broke. related. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. I'm going to try to keep it clean for this episode. I, everyone Please. knows I accidentally slip in F bombs when I get frustrated with stuff uh, or, or <laughs> excited. I don't know. My, my emotions are very, <laughs> there's very little, little change in them. It seems from excited to aggravated. Uh, so, as we mentioned, we were talking about RPGs, which uh, is not red, purple, green, but role-playing games. Ah, um, okay. And we this episode is actually not... We don't... Sorry to shatter this illusion. Don't actually script these things so heavily in advance. But this is one where I took a you know, handful of notes almost a month ago and was like, I'm ready to go. And at the time, this is, this is one of the things I, I can't wait to touch on is at the time I thought, um, I'm going to introduce this. I'm going to talk about how Dungeons and Dragons got me back into playing these things and how, you know, within two years of sort of picking it up, Dungeons and Dragons is now my third favorite RPG. And then the oh. landscape has shifted even since I wrote those notes. <laughs> Well, so. let me let me ask as a as a somebody who who admittedly in many episodes, I mean, I I had a couple entry points to D and D, and they were so miserable that I just never quite acclimated yeah. to it. So, like, I'm I'm at, coming at it from like the layperson standpoint, layperson's point of view. So, is uh, yeah, and, I, and with well, with D and D, I was going to ask you because you said that's kind of that was your main thing. Is it common for a lot of people? To, is that the gateway drug to RPGs? Is D and D these I, days, or is that just one of many possible entry points that? You know, I, I think RPGs. it's, I think it's gotta be, it, it's just the name recognition. Like that is the, yeah. that is the brand name, you know, that brings people in. And so here, this is a theme that will run throughout this episode is, and one of the specific reasons I wanted to do it was because you had such a, I would say a formative, um, uh, uh, experience with D and D and yeah. like, like in a way that, um, turned you off of the experience even if you were able to see some uh you know some of what people might like about it and and we'll talk about that in depth of course but i but this is where it all sort of changed for me was when i started getting into it a couple of years ago i i'm pretty sure i told you like oh i just love this system and they've simplified everything and like the thing is you can play any game you want in the system and I, that is the thing that has been that has been expunged from my mind. I no longer think that the D and D D 20 system is like the perfect system to play anything in. And then once I had that thought, it sort of radically changed the way I thought about your experience. And I went, Oh, I can't wait to talk to Taylor about this because maybe D and D isn't the RPG for him, but there's mm. a bunch, like there's so many other things that you might be aware of from your D and D experience. It's like, how do we do this in a, in a better system, you know? Well, I just so, want to, I just want to clarify for those listening going, he didn't like D and D. It's not the fact that it was D and D specifically. It right, was that right. the groups I was with, the first one in particular was, they had a twist on D and D that just was not for me. And then the second group I was, I had sort of bombed in on. Um, and you could tell that was like an established little, little tight, mm. uh, trio. And I was sort of, a you know, I, I was, I, as I mentioned to you off, off air, I was sort yeah. of like the, the weekly guest host on a TV show. I was Ian McShane on game of Thrones, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which I pop player. up, I pop yeah. up and I'm like, I have a meaningful <laughs> thing, but I'm done. And then as you know, the, the story is not hinged on me in any meaningful way. So it's just At kind the- of. <laughs> at the end of the credits with Taylor Trask. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 
Um, and but I think that's a, that's the thing I'll get into. And so uh, without belaboring that, uh, jumping into it anymore, I, I'll just give the quick background on my RPG stuff because I don't I, my RPG experience because I do not want to claim to be some longtime player, but I definitely want to um, explain that there has there was like a a gap when I was twelve ish years old. Um, I had some friends. We all thought that Dungeons and Dragons would be fun to play. We had one of them probably had an older brother that played and that's what got us into it because me as a um, uh, obsessive uh, archivist, I still have like these AD&D character sheets that I wrote out that character on when I was 12 years old and these like hilarious dungeon maps and stuff. I know there was a game store in Nashville, Tennessee um, that I would go to and I I bought the red box and the blue box and, you know, tried to make sense of this game. But but it's just a classic case of like never had a dungeon master to show me the ropes, take me through it. You know, so me and my friends, uh, we probably created those characters and drew up some dungeon maps or something. And then that was it. You know, I'm pretty sure the same night that happened was the night I watched the movie Excalibur, which like for uh, 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 sex and violence reasons, like changed my perspective on (laughs) on many things in the world when I was 11 or 12 years old. (laughs) And um, Mm -hmm. it was, uh, you know, I guess Dungeons and Dragons, I associate those things together. Like, oh, this is a thing that's like too, too adult for me to get into or something. And then around that time, TSR, which was at then the publisher of Dungeons and Dragons, um, released the Marvel superheroes game. I bought the yellow box and the blue box of that. <laughs> so like, that's like the beginner set and then the expert set. What I liked about Marvel superheroes was it came with standees. So I spent all this time like cutting out these little standees and gluing them together. So I had tokens of all the you know superheroes that I liked. Um, and then it had these really great maps that looked very much like a Marvel comic map. So I would have like a map of this building that would be, you know, like two feet by three feet. And it was like, Oh, I can't wait to play on this. But same thing. It's like the rules were just inscrutable for a 12 or 13 year old at that point. And I didn't have, and it's just hard to get people together to, to get into this. So, uh, but you know, obviously my exposure to comic cons and podcasts, like I was hearing a lot of chatter about D and D and I'd just been interested for many years. And I had some friends, uh, maybe six or seven years ago, were like forming a group at work, and I was I was interested in getting into that, but I was leaving that workplace, and you know it was sort of like it. it I just kept missing the the entry, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And a couple years ago, what you know, maybe after Comic Con, maybe during a Comic Con, you know, I remember mentioning it to friends at Comic Con, and my friend Chris saying, actually, several of us are interested in it right now. We've we just haven't. jump you know taking the leap and one thing is that we feel like we've got to know someone that wants to be a dungeon master and so I thought well I'll do that and I reached out to a friend of mine that I knew had been a dungeon master for like 30 years and said hey can you show me the ropes and then that prompted his game group to start a game so I joined that as a player and got to pick up on all his dm tips as a player there and anyway I that's my introduction And I wanted to get your exposure on the record (laughs) because then I think my, I think I can uh, bridge off of that, which is how were, how did you first play this game? What was your introductory experience to it? Well, 
I, you know, after we sort of chatted about this over the uh, uh, couple days ago, I was kind of going back through my personal history, and there were there were times as a kid that there were all these amazing sort of like pop up. You know, you could send in and and have like a you know kind of a package of cool stuff sent to your house. It was sort of like the the, uh, the OG. Yeah. Ver- the OG version of like kind of the bento boxes you can buy now where it's like you'd get on a subscription service and this was like in the eighties, um, late, late eighties, early nineties. And you'd get kind of these cool little kits sent to your house. And I remember a couple of those had sort of these games included that were very RPG ish, even though if they, they weren't officially titled that. So I've always sort of had this tangential interest and then being a theater kid, you know, I'm wired to love the idea of it, you know, to be able to create these yeah. characters and have these interactions, almost like these little live movies. Um, you know, uh, you know, every weekend, like they, it, everything about it seems like it would appeal to me. And then I get to college in my freshman year of college. I lived in a dorm and particularly with a person who's great guy. I won't say his name. I don't want to embarrass him, but like this, they played, he and his friend group played D and D religiously every weekend, every Sunday, they'd have a potluck and they'd gather around and there's about 12, sometimes 14 of them. There's a lot of them. And then I, you know, kind of, they, they open invitation anytime I want to come down. Well, one of these, one of these, uh, after a couple months of that, I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to finally, let me just, let me join in because this looks fun. I come down there and at that point in time, I think I was number 13 or 14 that day. And I didn't realize a couple of things about the way they played in the, in the game. That, that's you're in 13th the or 14th, the pl- 13th or 14th player in a game. In a game. Yeah. So right away, that's a big red flag that didn't occur to me at the time. Um, also I didn't realize they, they play for at least eight hours. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, they have their lunch and then about one o'clock they go and they don't sometimes finish until 9 PM that on Sundays and they sit and, and they sat down kind of in our common room at the bottom, you know, downstairs in the dorm. And so that, that all of a sudden it was like, okay, okay. And then I didn't realize the way they played was very, very like the, the dungeon master was very particular. And so mm. It turned into, uh, you know, about two hours because I had to bail after two hours. I was so bored that I was just like, I can't. I, I, I sort of did a, I sort of did a, uh, you know, kind of a, is it a Minnesota goodbye where you just kind of sneak out without anybody knowing that you, you've left? I just was like, hey, I go to the bathroom. I just never came back because um, I just didn't know how to tell them that this is the most boring thing in the world because it was like having a choose your own adventure book read to you and yeah. you don't get to choose. And so I just sit there because, like, I would roll and I'm like, well, I'm going to do this. Or, like, actually, you can't do that because this. And I'm like, oh, okay. And that just kept happening. Like, I didn't have any agency as a character whatsoever. Um, you know, like, even the way my character was designed had to fit very specific. Uh, oh, you know, Lord. Everything well, about it was just very, very, like, I, I, I didn't know why they thought it was fun to do that for eight hours. And it was not at all. You know, like my my understanding of D and D was sort of the the Stranger Things presentation, like you know, right, a smaller right, group right, of right. people really getting into it. You know, very collaborative. Um, you know, and the Dungeon Master is almost just kind of like you know, it, it, you know, kind of the default, but like it's not. You know, it's they're not sort of creating this dictatorial, you know, authoritarian game situation. So that was like the first time, and then the second time um, I got roped in was in Tennessee at in Nashville at Belmont, and there were these three guys who had been playing, you know, kind of together for a long time. And they're like, hey, you know, you, we think you might have fun. And I did, but it was very clear that, like, that group had really established kind of a shorthand and, like, you know, it, they right. were they were into a very particular story that, again, I was, the, I was just the guest star that week. So, yeah. you know, it gave me a taste of what, you know, a better version of it, but it was like, oh, I, I really need to start from scratch with people like this where I can kind of build a rapport and, and a history and – and so I, yeah. just, I, I've been sort of drifting since then, not really having that, you know, well, that group of people. 
what were the what were the like how long ago was the first experience and then how long ago was the second experience 20 years ago for experience one that was 2000 uh actually no i'm sorry it was 2001 so 19 years ago um almost 20 years ago and then the uh, second one was 2004 oh okay four so because i was i was still in college and i was just like let me try again and so, then uh, it's been a while since, obviously, since then. And you you said something in there that I wanted to pick up on uh, before circling back to those dates, which is that <clears throat> you were a theater kid, and so you were wired for this. Yeah. And I, that is honestly like a stumbling block for a lot of people who are in the geek world like me, because I definitely went into it thinking, I'm not a theater kid. I don't want to go, quote, role play. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I loved all this geek stuff and these geeky genres and certainly things like Game of Thrones and Stranger Things came around and, and put, you know, like, you know, like I, you know, I got into them and then I was like, oh, I guess I could deal with medieval fantasy. That was another stumbling block for me. It was like, do I want to play a medieval fantasy game? Um, so that that's a great point, because I, I hope that, I, you know, it's there's so much to touch on in this episode, we can't get to it all. But I, I would definitely love to talk at later times or to people personally, that's like, you don't have to be that theater person and feel that, that, that you need a stage presence in order to play these games. Like, it's great. And I totally think you're right on with like that wired for it thing. But there are, you know, um, so I, I, yeah, I, 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 I really appreciate you bringing that up. And I just... I think there's an important counterpoint, which is like, hey, even shy geeks that don't that may feel like they're not theater kids can enjoy this. Well, um, let me let me let me throw one more thing in the in the fire. So, like, I as as you're saying that, I'm reminded when I was uh, you know a little kid, you know, zero to seven, um, I big He-Man fan, and I used to get yeah. you know get together with my friends on the weekend and bring my toy. We'd all you know, we'd have this you know, we'd pick somebody's house and we would have you know set up these epic sort of He-Man like playtime storyline kinds of things and sometimes you know gi joe would slip in every now and then as like you know kind of a an elseworld sort of story but like we we'd spend like two maybe three hours like planning everything and like creating this okay you know when i do this this will happen over here so we're basically playing with, with toys and if it wasn't that it was like outside you know kind of creating these like okay in this in this scenario and like basically doing like live action larping kind of yeah you know sort of hybrid so like it's it's not like i'm not ready for i think maybe because those experiences were so tactile so collaborative and so just like you have a certain thing when i got into a very systematized very it almost felt like you know we might as well have been doing our taxes in in character you know like that's what that first experience felt like it was just so tedious and just it i that was what i didn't expect and didn't realize that some people played with that level of just tedium and detail and just Oh, I mean, just it was of a certain. It was just a certain yes. kind of hum. So I, you know, I have not. You know, if our listeners don't know, I have never seen you uh, run a game or or yeah. DM a game. Like, so I'm. I would love to see or even just experience yeah. kind of how you set up because I'm sure it's. I'm sure it's a much better experience than what I dealt with. Well, that first time. I I love all of this. This is such a perfect experience. And the reason I asked about how long ago it was that you played these games, this also ties into your opening question, which is like, is D and D just the you know, how is that? Is that just the, the when you think of RPG as a and d is that what mm-hmm. people have to get into to get into the next thing, you know? And um, the answer now is no. Like, it doesn't have to be your entry point anymore. It's definitely the brand name. Mm-hmm. But the reason you're, he, this is uh, opinion. I think the reason you're hearing of it so much more these days and 
the reason that it has swelled in this popularity is because in 2015, they released the fifth edition of it. So that means that you and I, our exposure to it was not under the fifth edition. Mm-hmm. Um, in, tw- in 20 and or sorry, in 2001, you were probably in second edition at that point. This has become a big thing. I am not the nerd to answer all these things uh, as I love nerding out on it, but I, I definitely don't know all this information. But um, a big seismic thing happened in D&D uh, around, around the release of number three. And pardon me, nerds, if I'm screwing this up, but. Third edition, I think, is the first one where they converted to what they called the D20 system, which meant that you're going to roll the 20-sided die for almost every check, every attack, everything. It made things so much simpler. You're not rolling specific dice based on your class. You're all rolling the D20 for any ability check you want to do. The, the DM says, make an athletics check to see if you can clear that gorge. You roll the D20 and add your athletics bonus. That's mm-hmm. it. So it made it so much simpler. And then all the other dice became things like damage or healing or, um, you know, odds or, cha- you know, like random table stuff. Um, so, yes, the fighter and the cleric roll the same die to see if they hit something. But then they're going to have different damage dice because the fighter is going to have a bigger one, you know, whatever. Um, that that was a big shift. And the second thing they did there with the release of three was that they open sourced a ton of material. My open then, source. What do you mean? Like, what do you, they made the entire D 20 system open sourced. So, uh, and they don't, they don't use that. They, they use open gaming license and they talk about these but system wait, reference. When you doc. say open source, like we're kind of veering into like Scientology technology terms. Cause like when you, it, it's Whoa. not a, a software program. <laughs> well, but no, it saying, is a software. Oh, think, okay. Think, think software. Don't think Scientology. But, no, <clears throat> what, what I'm saying, but like, but open source, but like, are we talking about like the physical books and manuals and stuff? Like you can just like, what, what define open what, source for me? Cause I'm kind of having. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great. Uh, the, in that system reference document, that is basically a manual for how to play D and D that is completely free online for you to read and learn from and also build your own games from. Oh, okay. Okay. So, when they did that, um, and, and this is more of the story I would love to find out, and I'm sure it's pretty a couple Googles away. I just haven't done it yet. Um, so they do that around version three, and then they get this weird feedback for three. I guess the old school people didn't really like third edition or something. So they quickly release 3.5, but they don't use the same team that, that kicked this off, that the open sourcing and the D20 system. That team says, screw you, Wizards of the Coast. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And they go to Paizo and create Pathfinder. And Pathfinder becomes the spiritual successor to D&D. And then strangely, this is the part of the story I don't really understand. It ends up becoming the crunchier one, not the more open one. Mm -hmm. Um, Pathfinder is basically like D&D with all the third edition crunch. So what I'm thinking is that you came in for that first experience around that time, and then your second experience was probably in third edition or so, ah, and you were in okay. all of this crunch and all of this like perplexing details of things, um, <laughs> where it it does become like doing your taxes. So <clears throat> uh, fourth edition, I don't know much about, but it continued the sort of like splintering of the group. So all of this to say, the reason, one of the many reasons, like there's, the D and D faded out of our consciousness and then came back in 
is because they simplified the system and made it better. So with fifth edition, it became a user-friendly game. Mm-hmm. And because it had that, now it was building on all the open source stuff, it also became a game where third parties had all of this material to work with. And now that they had a simpler rule set, it was like, oh, we can all make adventures. We can make magic items. We can make maps. We can make, you know. So it became this super, super rich game, like in five years, you know, it is now. What's so fascinating about that is I had assumed that's what it was this entire time. I thought it was like, oh, it was just a, kind of this open source thing where people were, were maybe start, you maybe buy a starter box or something, but you were just, you know, you could. Right mess with it to your liking i mean weren't there not and you, you certainly not, could yeah yeah okay i was gonna say it's not like they there's not like a, a dnd police going around to you know houses like are you, are you playing with an officially licensed product let me ask you this though right something not to houses but it, i think what? it made it harder to sell those things in stores so ah. you you had a game shop well everyone's making homebrew dnd stuff but it's having to be circulated in like zines and stuff you know of course it all also, you know, you think 20 years ago, it's the, you know, the internet is just beginning to become ubiquitous. And so all of this comes up with the rise of the internet. And it just wouldn't make any sense for D&D, for Wizards of the Coast, who owns D&D, to, you know, to have that old school mindset of like, hey, you can't sell our stuff in shops or whatever. So well, let's we've touched on this. How much when did the Wizards acquisition occur? Wasn't I that think, like the last five years or so? As no, 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 no. Actually, I think it was in the 90s. What? Um, Are you serious? I think three and three, five may have happened, but I definitely appreciate the fact check on that. Um, But anyway, that I think is like that also, if you're, if you're, um, I, I think there was a stigma too. You know, I can even remember like five years ago, you know, Comic-Con, it was like, there's the comic book people and the video game people. And then, and then it's like, and then the role-playing people and the LARPing people. And it was like, they were all, they were still a little, uh, uh, disenfranchised from the like mainstream geek crowd. And I do think some of it is because these games were, were, as I said, to reuse that word inscrutable, like if, unless you have this whole culture behind it, you're coming to it and going like, God damn. Oh, of course there occurs. You're going, uh, how much math do I have to do to, to learn this game? You know, how many tables do I have to keep? How why am I doing my taxes? You know, <laughs> by the way, and, um, quick, well, quick, quick, uh, oh, yeah. fact check. So you're fact. right. In 1997, uh, TSR, the original publisher was bankrupt almost and wizards of the coast yeah. swooped in. And then they spent three years developing third edition, which came out in 2000. So that was that third edition and beyond was all wizards of the coast sort of, uh, you know, midwifed essentially. And so you were you you were in this weird dark ages time where, <laughs> um, like literally, uh, where you, like if you came along in two thousand, I don't your group might have not even like they may have just gotten the third edition books and they're still trying uh, to make it compatible with AD and D or some advanced Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. um, and that was a problem D and D had forever because. When I came in with like the red box, I always assumed because I had this red box that everyone had called like basic set. And then there okay. was a blue box called expert rules. And uh, what I understood at the time was the blue box was what the DMs bought. Like that's what your dungeon master buys. But the red box is like what everybody gets to learn how to play it. That's mm-hmm. not really the case. Like it just, you know, it, they just never had a set. Uh, there was Dungeons and Dragons and then there's advanced Dungeons and Dragons. And there was, you know, uh, it just... It, it, it wasn't codified in a way. It, it was not that source code kind of like open source software thing of like, this is the source code that runs this game. Mm-hmm. You, you're you constantly learning these weird little like 
you know, ad hoc rules or something. And which on one hand, you know, can make a really rich game experience. But but you, I mean, you just got to admit like that prohibits new players from joining because they don't know where to start. They don't know what the entry point is. Um, and fifth edition really clarifies all that. And they have done such a good job of making those entry points like really, really clear and open to people. Um, like there's a website called dndbeyond.com, which I don't think is managed by wizards, but is licensed with them and heavily like together. So you can actually buy all the books digitally there and then share them with your players in a campaign. And so everyone has access to all the materials you have. Um, they have, you know, you character sheets that they'll just build the character like with you. So you're not having to keep up with like, what do I add to the thing with the other thing? And it just like does all the addition for you. Um, so in some ways, you know, it's pre preventing people from learning all the intricacies of the game, but it's definitely like quick starting people into it. Like, hey, jump into this, see if you like it before you start buying all the books and figuring out that That's stuff. That's cool. That's really smart because you can, you, yeah. I mean, you can assume you might like it, but again, the people you play it with, sort of the, your, your flavor of what you go. Let me ask you this though, is is there a, I'm just trying to kind of put my history together here because this has been, yeah. I didn't realize all those, you know, that kind of that third edition and but, that fifth edition especially were so, so pivotal. Um, is there, can you draw a clean line between the, open sourcing of D&D &D and sort of the explosion of tabletop gaming we've seen in the last, you know, let's just say 10 years. Oh, is, are, are they, is there a marriage between the two? Like, did, did, did one kind of fuel the other? Or was that just a, a, a nice coincidence? Because we've seen, I, I mean, Jesus, Settlers of Catan and beyond, like that yeah. whole thing exploded around the same time, it seems like. Or am I just, am I trying to lump too much together? I, I love that you bring that up because I actually had a, a note to, to bring up something similar, which is in those days when like, so even though I think of myself as like, well, I guess I just wasn't an RPG kid. I was interested. I wanted to get into it, but it, it felt like there was a, a some sort of roadblock to it. Mm -hmm. But in those days when I was going to the game store, I would buy these just weirdo games, um, especially from Steve Jackson games, who everyone knows now because there's a game called Munchkin that says Steve Jackson games on top of it. And Munchkin has a thousand versions um, and has like a very D and D similar like uh, version of it. But you know, you can buy like an ax cop version of Munchkin or a Batman version of Munchkin or something. It's kind of, it's like a card and dice and board game sort of thing. Um, but Steve Jackson had made these sort of RPG if not totally RPG, but RPG adjacent games. So I used to play car wars with my friends where you mm -hmm. would build a car with all these weapons on it, put it in arena. It was basically twisted metal on paper. <laughs> and um, he also had written these choose your own adventure books where you, and I, maybe I shouldn't say he wrote them. I don't know if Steve Jackson wrote them, but they were Steve Jackson game books where you created a, like a D and D sort of character and went through your choose your own adventure, rolling dice and subtracting your hit points from your character and stuff like that. And those I loved, like that was such a big part of my childhood was reading these books, you know, and getting to take different adventures every time. Um, so that was very formative. And then my friends and I also played this game called Axis and Allies, which I bring up because uh, yes. that was the first game where you got to roll like a buttload of dice. Mm -hmm. So you would, <laughs> you know, you put your army together, you'd start a battle and you're like, I, I got to roll 15 dice for this. Oh my God. Um, and it was, I, I, you brought up the explosion of tabletop gaming. And I, th I think um, I'm just trying to like circle around in there. I, yes, we're probably both trying to lump too much together, but I was just trying to, to bring up that like when I was a kid, when you thought of board games, you thought of Clue, Monopoly, Sorry, 
whatever. They were kind of dull. You'd done them as a kid. You're like, oh, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a tween. What do I, what do I play now? <laughs> and for me, that variety was in these weirdo RPG and RPG adjacent games, you know, where you didn't necessarily need a game master to run it, but you were still sort of creating something original and like there, you know, there's that creative play in it. And I do wonder, I don't know that you can track the open sourcing of D&D to the explosion of tabletop games right now, mm -hmm. but I think it's the same instinct of like, there's this whole generation of people who grew up with that as their background. And they were like, you know what? I want the creativity and fun of Car Wars in an easier to play package, you know, so it almost looks like a clue board game like Catan, you know? Oh, you, yeah, yeah. You know, Catan, you pull out the pieces and you put it together and like you're playing on a board with, you know, with things that you understand. This is this is the person that I, you know, this is the settler I place on the property and this is the six-sided die I roll. These are cards. Like, there's nothing there that doesn't make sense to you. It's all, like, in the paradigm. But mm -hmm. um, but I, won I do think that creativity must have come out of that generation of people who came up thinking, like, board games are boring and <laughs> RPGs are inscrutable. How do mm -hmm. I, like, put these things together and get ah, this creativity bubbling? And, th and that is also a great segue into... Uh, like I said, I, I would have told you a month ago, D and D was my third favorite game, uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> third favorite RPG. I, and then, and then I had an experience that, that flipped it back up to number two. Uh, and I, and what's funny about that is I think even at, at Comic-Con last year, I was telling a friend like, well, you know, we're going to these RPG panels, but honestly, I only care about D and D. And then even there, I'm like shopping for other RPGs <laughs> while I'm saying that. So it was clear, like I'm about to fall into this rabbit hole. <laughs> I just don't know it yet. Um, but there is a really great game. Um, and this is one of those games where I, I I think you would really like this game. And it is called an RPG. It is called, uh, sorry, it's, it's in the genre of RPG. It is called Blades in the Dark. And it combines a lot of the mechanical things that you might do in a board game with the role-playing aspect. Okay. And so... Then that author also had the, you know, foresight and everything to just open source his rule set, you know, at the beginning. And I heard an interview with him where I think even his like web developer suggested it like, hey, if you if you want to just make a system reference document, I can easily pull this out of the doc, you know, and so quickly made a website that just has the system. So it doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have all the flavor of Blades in the Dark because Blades in the Dark has a real specific uh, noir, like Victorian noir kind of setting. Um, but, uh, and I'm happy to d dive down that rabbit hole as far as you'd like to go, but I, but just to give you an overview of the mechanics, you create a character that's in a playbook. Um, so rather than thinking like class and race, a problematic term from D&D, &D, um, that doesn't make a lot of sense, in uh, Blades in the Dark, you're a you're a class but it it doesn't like define you like um if you're in D, D, the thing is like all those little rules and crunchy bits end up okay if you want to be a fighter well you probably don't want to be a gnome because the gnome isn't going to give you a boost to your constitution or your strength which is what you're going to need as a fighter so it's sort of like in D, &D you get in this meta gaming head of well, the class of player, the class of character I want to be is going to inform what sort of race of character I choose because mm -hmm. of their attributes. Now, that said, D and D is a, about to change the way that you create characters, and hopefully, getting rid of the term race altogether and going with something like ancestry or folk or something like that. But 
there's still ways that, you know, if you want to be an archer, uh, like a ranger, you're probably going to go with an elf or you could go with an elf because that's going to give you a dexterity bonus and that's going to help you hit with ranged weapons, etc. In Blades in the Dark, you don't have to think about that. You can take one of their playbooks that looks like, say, um, a magic user, but you can like stack it full of like melee combat. You know, it doesn't matter what sort of class you play. You get to your uh, skills and attributes. You can just distribute how you want. That class just gives you access to a couple of special features. Okay. So, um, and because it's all on this one sheet that's like laid out, like this is such a product of the information age. This guy, these things are designed, and I say this with complete affection. They are designed within an inch of their lives. Like they, the play sheets are perfect. You can print out one sheet and have everything you need on it. Equipment, you know, your stress level, your stats, like everything. And what Blades in the Dark does is you you narrate a scene like you would in any role playing game. The the GM, the game master, does. Um, the players tell what they want to do. So there's no more dungeon master telling players to do a thing like what you said about the choose your own adventure that's being read to you the dun- the game master in blades in the dark doesn't say make a perception check it's up to the players to say i want to gather information here ah great and then Love they it. put together a pool of six-sided dice uh based on how many like points they have in particular skills and they roll that pool and all you're looking for is a four to six that's a success a one to three is a failure so that helps you push the fiction forward right away. So there are these really specific instructions. Well, not even specific. They're just the really emphatic instructions to players that are, it's your responsibility to push the fiction too. So it's not up to the game master to have all these details put together. You roll those dice. So even though a four to six succeeds, a four and five are a success with a consequence. You roll this pool of dice, you look for the highest number. That highest number is a five. And the GM says, ooh, you succeed, but there's a consequence. Well, the player can come up with that consequence. You know what? I break my skeleton key off in the lock, so I can't use that again. So it's like I get the door unlocked, but I broke my, you know, my master key. And so it becomes this more collaborative storytelling thing. Um, And the reason I jumped into Blades in the Dark is because there are these, what I would, what my friend Chris actually pointed out to me are very board game elements of Uh, There are phases to the game. So like in a lot of board games, you'll have that like, this is the draw phase. We all draw a card. This is the build phase. We all put our settlers down. This is the, you know, uh, fight phase where we all roll our dice or something. Well, in Blades in the Dark, you have your planning phase, your, uh, um, what do they call it? I can't believe this just slipped out of my head. Your score phase, um, and then your downtime. And score is because Blades in the Dark is built for you to play scoundrels. Uh, are, I was just about uh, you, to ask because I, it seems, and I'm, I've got the web, their website, the yeah. blades in the dark.com does a really good job of just kind of giving you all the stuff in, in website format. But as you were talking, I was like, this sounds like a, a game of D and D where everybody's chaotic neutral, which yeah. kind of sounds amazing. And honestly is the, the form of D and D I've always wanted to play, which is everybody's kind of, you can align. It's like suicide squad. Like you can align with other people to get something done, but you're always looking out for yourself. So there's a bit of a competitive element between all the players individually, <laughs> as well yeah. as the players having to like kind of, uh, form together to, to get stuff done. I think a better better uh, metaphor is probably the, the uh, game show Survivor, which is like, hey, you're on a team, <laughs> but you're 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 constantly trying to be the kind of the last man through. And I just like the idea of 
you know, a bunch. Yeah. You're always you're, you're always kind of looking over your shoulder um, in the gameplay, which I just that just appeals to me. And yeah. And it, although it is not uh, every person for themselves, it is um, that what you identify as chaotic neutral is definitely like leaned into. Great. Because, oh, I love, I like um, that. you know, there are just such there's such great mechanics in it. Like you don't. Um, you don't have hit points. You do have harm, levels of harm, but you also have this separate track called stress. So you can always push yourself to take more dice. Okay, say you're in fighting. Their skill for fighting is called skirmish. You need to fight somebody, so you have to use skirmish, but you only have one point in it. So that means you can only roll one die. Well, you can push yourself and add another die. So I can say, I'm going to take two stress, push myself, and basically purchase that second die so now i have a better chance of rolling a four through six you know uh, okay. when, I, when i fight this person mm-hmm. now what it's one great thing of that like as i as hopefully i touched on but i don't know that i've specifically said is one roll determines that outcome now because because you're not whittling down hit points combat can just be two rolls of dice you know like which can be great because you're not spending literally an hour which is what dnd generally takes to to, to fight out one minute of combat, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you take this stress level and then one of the cool mechanics is if you fill up that stress track, you take a trauma and it's up to the player to choose from these traumas. And the traumas are very like subjective. And what they do is just give you a layer to your character. So you can take the trauma cold. And so you have, now you have to play that character. Like I'm cold. I don't show any warm emotions you know, like what the stress I have taken has has rendered me sort of emotionless. The better you play into that trauma, the more experience points you get, which of course adds to your skills, etc. So you max out that stress track again. Now you take the trauma paranoid. So now you're like an emotionless, paranoid person. You know, the better you play that. So I think that feeds into exactly what you're talking about of being those chaotic neutral characters who have to sort of look out for themselves, even if they're in a crew and your ultimate goal is literally retirement. You're just trying to put Uh, enough coin in your stash so that you can retire because the worst thing that happens is that you like, you know, I can't remember if trauma can max you out. I think there's only so much, so many traumas you can take. So you take too many traumas, like you're just a vegetable. And like you, you are incompetent at being a thief from now on. And like, yeah, so you retire with what you got in your stash. That could just be 10 coins, you know? Um, so I, I would have told you this was my second favorite game or tied with my first. I have, in all honesty, only played one game of Blades in the Dark, but I have played several games of its sci-fi spinoff, which is called Scum and Villainy. Okay. Which... Um, is like because they open sourced that system, they had this sci-fi game come along right away by a different creative team. Now pa- pause and, real quick, pause real quick, because I'm yeah. still I'm still trying to wrap my head around this open sourcing of the games. You're saying that Blades in the Dark, just like D and D, open sourced kind of their all their sort of mechanics their and stuff. Meaning yeah. that if you and I want to go and create a game called Scumming Villainy, we can and then sell it legally. And actually, like, have it be accepted as sort of a spinoff of Blades in the Dark. Is that sort of the, the idea? Yes. Okay, perfect. Yeah. There, yeah, you know, there's there's normal um, open source is probably a, the wrong word because there are sort of licensing, but it is an open game license. So, so more it, like know, more like public you, domain sort of light. More, more like Creative Commons. Oh, might be the better. Ooh, so perfect. Instead okay. of saying 
you like for example you can't say we base this off blades in the dark there's just a legal thing that's like you have to call it a forged in the dark game and use this logo you know that kind of thing um scum and villainy was good enough to get picked up by the same publisher so it the book of it looks exactly like blades in the dark which makes this great you know set um so i played a lot of scum and villainy and a in between us planning this episode and us recording it, ran a game of Blades in the Dark. And granted, I made a few GM mistakes. Or I, never mind. I made a lot of GM mistakes, which um, I was sort of trying to bend the game to my will. But I have, it, it does, it, it gives so much power to the players. But, and you you are able to start without the players reading the book. Like you can basically give them the quick start cheat sheets and the the playbook and they can get into it, you know, but it does work best when your players are really engaged in playing this kind of game and, and want to do it on their own. Like they're the ones who say, you know what? Our next score should be hitting that gang that, you know, hit us in the last time because you also keep track of like what factions you're at war with and stuff like that in this Mm -hmm, game. mm -hmm. So it is best when the players are sort of driving that, but obviously to introduce people to it, you can't, you know, you, you can't just give them all that to run on their own. So I had a a predetermined scenario and I think it went okay, but it was just my mistakes of like, Oh, I can't adapt the scenario well enough to the rules and blah, blah, blah. It, and not that that should make me disfavor the game. I just felt like it's it, it requires an investment, I guess, and and probably a couple of sessions of sitting down with that group that, that sort of like wants to learn a new game. Um, so, so I would say like once they get into it, it's great for one shots because then it's like, oh, you can just like, you can say we're playing Blades in the Dark, bring a character and they can sit down, look at the city map and go, you know what? We want to hit these people in this area blah 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 and then the gm has a bunch of tables to roll on and figure out the details and you're in it um one of the very cool things about it i'll mention uh this other really cool uh uh, mechanic in it is that you don't spend a lot of time with the players planning the score so which is funny because even though you and i as kids like we played those imaginative games where you're coming up with the whole you know, He-Man scenario that you're going to play out with your toys. Mm-hmm. That And that's definitely a part of D&D is like you're planning this whole thing. You know, when you hit the goblin hideout, you're going to do all these, you know, it's, it's all the strategy and stuff, which is great, but it takes a while. Yeah. In Blades yeah. in the Dark, you just pick how you're hitting it. Like you can say full on assault. You can say, nope, we're going to use deception and we're going to try to pretend that we're somebody else when we go in the building. Or you can just try to break in the building. You know, now we're going to sneak in or whatever. There's a there's a list. So wait, wait, then wait, wait, just... wait. But if you let's say somebody let's say it's agreed upon, we're going to sneak in and then somebody like Leroy Jenkins at the last second. Is that allowed? They can't. Is, oh, they can't. OK, well, you you pick that plan you or you pick the uh, whatever it's called, the, the, the approach that's like how you're going to hit the score. So yeah. you just say we're doing deception. Then you roll the dice, which is called the engagement roll. And depending on the success of that, you narrate what happened in the scene based on that. Okay. So you, um, uh, so for example, the one shot I did with everybody was based on Die Hard. So they're hitting the Nakatomi <laughs> Tower, which I like repurposed into this whole, you know, weird Victorian noir setting. Um, well, if they said, hey, we're going to do it just like the movie and we're going to hit with deception and we walk in pretending, you know, we're, we're talking about the Lakers game, but then we're just going to shoot the guy at the last second. 
and they roll badly, then I would say like the guard notices immediately and he pulls out his gun and, you know, shoots you in the shoulder. Now you got a first level harm on your shoulder. You know, then we're like, you're in it all of a sudden. So it doesn't matter what these like best laid plans of like my dwarf is going to, you know, rappel down over here and blah, blah, blah. It's oh like, my God. I like this so much the more right there because that, yeah. that, that was my biggest frustration is that there every move was like so defined out like there was nothing spontaneous yeah. there was nothing like in the moment and if there was it was just to basically shut down it was like the opposite of improv you know improv is like yeah. yes yes it, and um exactly. this was you know you'd be like what about this like nope yeah, and they you know it's like they they would roll something and just make something up to like totally. shut down shut down that idea so that the very carefully you know very stringently designed storyline could take take place and i'm just like dude i don't this is not in, this is not interactive at all. This is again best analogy right. is a choose your own adventure book read to you and you don't get to choose. And the thing is not not only is that not fun for the players, but it's not fun for the dungeon master because the dungeon master then has to think. Uh, and to me, the 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 um, analogy I always use is like a Lord of the Rings. That's how I think of. Ah, big fantasy okay. so okay you you put your players on this quest but they might not necessarily know about it um you kind of nudge them like hey you got to go to this one place to meet this guy to pick up this thing well if they don't go it's easy enough to put that thing somewhere else that yeah, they do go yeah, to yeah, yeah but you you're constantly spinning out contingencies well what if they don't do this and i yeah. need them to pick this up to continue the story well what what's evident to me now is that in all these especially indie rpgs they're really built for everyone at the table to participate in that. So, you know, as um, Bruce McCullough, the beloved kid in the hall, said about the doors having no bass player, don't let that scare you. Let that free you. <laughs> <laughs> I love wow. that. That's a great. That robot. was my best. <laughs> That's a great. Now, when you say kid in the hall, are, right are, you, are you talking about like the actual Canadian comedy troupe kids in the hall? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. They had a, they had a, a sketch called "The Doors," where he, he's a record uh, a store owner talking about like how great the doors are. <laughs> Quick question: Who's on base? <laughs> um, That's a great point. I never sorry. thought about that. Wow, I've I've ruined my illusion by uh, joking so much about how I made a great illusion. Um, the uh, but yeah, I I think the typical dungeon master looks at a game like that and goes, "Oh, but I want to tell this story." Yeah, but it's really like. I, for me, you know, only being like um, a, a year and a half into my dungeon mastering career at this point is like, that is such a chore. Like there are things that I just dread about having to like prep all that stuff. And these indie RPGs allow you to go in with much less prep and really have fun playing the game because that's what you're supposed to be doing as a dungeon master. You're supposed to be playing, you know. So that was a perfect setup. You saying all that about how you love that and turning it into an improv game for my number one favorite RPG right now, which is the game Fate, uh, and specifically its spinoff, which is called the Fate Accelerated Edition. Okay. Fate, um, uh, it looks vastly different from D&D and even from Blades in the Dark. Uh, specifically, first of all, because you're you're using six sided dice, so you're using cubes, but um, they're they're brought over from this other game called Fudge, so they're sometimes called Fudge dice or Fate dice. They only have two symbols on them, a plus or a minus, and then the third side is blank. So every die has two pluses, two minuses, and two blank sides. On every roll, you roll all four dice, add up the pluses, subtract the minuses, don't do anything with the blanks, and then you'll add a modifier like to it. Um, so instantly it's it's like a you know 
you, the familiar, you got the familiarity of the dice, but you're not, um, you know, you're not dealing with like numbers. There's like this immediate sort of weird thing of like, oh, I got to add up the pluses. Like I, I have so many players go, I got two pluses and one minus and one blank. And then I have to do the addition in my head, mm-hmm. which is not, which is not fair players. You should learn how to do addition and subtraction. <laughs> Um, that's what but, you hide behind your little board. You know how they have that sort of like that testing wall. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you have a calculator back there. You got all your stuff. Exactly. I don't mind. Bring a calculator to the game players. There's, it can only ever be a four or a negative four. <laughs> um, the, uh, so it looks different, but what's really genius about this game. Uh, oh, sorry. Let me give a warning up front. What, what is very complicated about the fate core system where you'll find like a 300 page book on this is um, that it is written to be system agnostic. So it's written really for you to build the game at the table with your friends. You say, hey, you know what? We're going to do a steampunk game with airships. And then you all sit at the table and like collaborate on it. Um, so, the, so the book can be really hard to understand until, you, until it sort of clicks for you because the book is written like without any of the flavoring of that. They give basically three examples throughout the book. They give like a fantasy one and like a sci-fi one and a steampunky one, I think. Okay. Um, so they're basically saying like, oh, well, say you're Zord the Incredible, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but the place where this gets really into that improv and stuff, and which is just so freaking genius, I can't, I, I love it so much, is that when you're creating your character, you don't just come up with like, skills and like try to figure out like how battle ready you are and you know and then leave the squishy stuff up to your imagination the squishy stuff actually becomes part of the character you what you first do is you say this is the high concept for my character and that establishes a fact in the game and these things will continue to be through the game as aspects so if you are um taylor the bravest sword in uh colorado that's the fact. You're the bravest swordsman in Colorado. I am. You know, that that is. And so you get to invoke that aspect to give yourself bonuses. The twist on that is in the game master or game mistress uh, can also uh, compel you with that aspect. Um, so you so I, I you know, you you walk into a, a battle with somebody that look that like it's clearly going to kick your your butt. I can say Sorry, you're the bravest sword in Colorado. I compel you to 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 fight this person. I see. And okay. So when you invoke it to give yourself a bonus, you pay a fate point. And when I compel you, I give you a point. So it's all about this like sort of point economy of like how many you're you're you know there's not a it's not a win lose point system. It's just like you need a an inventory to them. Think of them as like in D and D you have spell slots. So, in, you know, if you're a wizard in D&D, you can only cast, say, five spells per day until you rest and regenerate your magic. Well, that's sort of your fate points. You know, you've you need to uh, I need to compel you more so you can earn more fate points. But then you do this great thing called uh, when you're when you're creating the game where then you hand your sheet to the person next to you and say, what's our relationship? And they add an aspect to your sheet. And so you could say, um, uh, I owe Todd my life, or I could write that on there <laughs> for your sheet. You hand me your sheet. I write, I, uh, Taylor owes Todd his life. So then all of us get to play on that. And that, and that point economy works between the players. So the players can then like invoke or compel these aspects on each other and say like, Hey, you owe me your life. I'm compelling you to jump down this ravine and save me. 
God. You know? Okay. okay. And so it does become like that. that yes and game. And I think there's a big hurdle of of learning how to talk about aspects in a fluent sort of conversational way in the game. But it it is so to me it is just so much more engaging for everyone because you're always coming up with the facts of the story. So you have aspects in the situation you're in. You have aspects in the place you're in. You have like, you know, you, you go into a haunted house and, and um, I can tell you some things like, Oh, it's dark. So you could use that. You could say, Hey, you know what? I'm going to invoke the aspect of the darkness and hide in this corner. Well, now you're going to get a plus two to your hiding, you know? Um, But you can also use your actions to create more aspects. So it just becomes this like you're all feeding off each other. And for me as a GM, it is the most fun I have had GMing a game like bar none. So I think that's where Blades slipped in my mind is like Mm. D&D has all this preparation I have to do. Um, now I really, I, I, you know, I unfortunately have become like a, a bit of a rules lawyer on it and sort of enjoy pushing people on those crunchy things. If they do something that's sto- that's better for the story, I'll always let the rule slide, you know, rule of fun, but, um, blades in the dark, you know, at least my experiences with it are like, uh, it, it's, it takes too much to get the players up to speed. I think you got that engaged core group going to be great. Fate is like. You could take just four good friends, sit them down with these dice and some and some blank index cards and make a game up that everyone's going to have fun playing. Nice. And that is the one I think you would have the most fun with because I think your imagination would run wild on like not necessarily things that your character wants to do, but things that like your character is going to see in the room and invoke aspects and like bring things up for other characters. And like then you all end up doing that and you're all contributing to this crazy story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I I know we were like <laughs> running long and everything, but I wanted to tell you about two fate games that I'm playing right now. Okay. Um, one is uh, the longest running one we've we've been doing for geez uh, four months, three or four months already. Um, and there there's another RPG. I hesitate to mention this. It looks like a cool RPG. I wanted to get into it. I suggested it to my to this this group of friends. They had uh, most of them had played Scum and Villainy with me. And I said, hey, I'm kind of inter- you know, interested in this game called Kids on Bikes, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's kids in the 80s <laughs> on bikes. Now, it's very cool. It has a ton of cool mechanics. I do not mean to badmouth it. But at the time, I was... I, I, I uh, Boy, my players are about to learn something huge right here, which is uh, I am not a fan of the genre Kids on Bikes. <laughs> Really? But wait, 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 wait. They are you... all huge fans of this genre. <laughs> but when you say genre, are you are you excluding Goonies, Stranger Things, Paper Girls? Are you saying that you don't like that? That's true. I love Paper Girls. Um, Goonies, yeah. Uh, but, and Stranger Things, I, I love. Uh, I just, it's funny when I said it, uh, my friend Ashley immediately goes, oh my gosh, I love the genre Kids on Bikes. And I was like, I've never really thought of that as a genre. That sounded like the funniest statement to me. Um, but in my head I was like, ah, well, I I guess what it is, is like, I don't, I, I just, I just wasn't, I don't know. I was curious about it, but it, I wouldn't put it as like, oh, I love all kids on bikes movies. Were you ever a kid on a bike? I mean, I I think part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cause I was, I was a big kid on a bike and I just, that. Yeah. Oh man. Riding to the arcade. (laughs) (laughs) I, I shudder at like 
you know, how far I would ride to the arcade. That's such a crazy thing. Um, anyway, the Kids on Bikes game system has a very, very cool rules for all collaborating on a town and things like that. So what I did was when we decided to play this was I went to him and said, hey, let's do Kids on Bikes um, cre- town creation, but I want to play the Fate Accelerated rules. Mm. Oh, I forgot to mention the other great thing about Accelerated. In Fate Core, like in the main Fate game, Fate Accelerated is like a 50-page paperback. It's five bucks. It's so fun to like just read this and go like, I could play this game. Fate Core is like the 300-page. This is the rule book. Fate Core, you have skills just like other RPGs, like, D&D, you know, they're a little bit different, but you have these hard skills, you know, my uh, investigation is a plus three and my, you know, driving capability is a plus two or whatever. Fate Accelerated swaps all that out for approaches. So before I got into these games, I read, I had read this advice that said Fate Accelerated is great if all the characters are basically the same level of power, like if they're all kids or they're all astronauts on a on a space station where they have the same amount of training because your approaches are like uh forceful flashy quick clever sneaky so instead of saying i'm gonna use my fighting skill to fight this guy you say i'm gonna punch this guy but i'm gonna do it in a sneaky way and then you get to add that bonus so that to me helps tell the story even better because when you have to think about how your character's approaching it you start you start thinking in character more than you're thinking on the sheet of like the hard skills, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I think that adds to the aspect. So that's why I, that's the other reason I really love this. Um, so we sat down and we went through the creation rules uh, from the kids on bikes RPG. So we, we said, okay, it's in the eighties and it is, it's in a time where not everyone is walking around with a video, uh, video camera on their phone. You know, that was that's like stipulated in the rule book. So we picked 1986. We picked uh, June 3rd, 1986, when they're graduating from their high school. We made up a town in Wyoming, although none of us has ever been to Wyoming, um, <laughs> called Aberdale. And then um, I found like an RPG map of a town that was unlabeled. We dropped it in there. And then anytime they say something like, oh, we need to go to the, the Quickie Mart to get you know we're we're playing pretty realistically so they can't pick up dynamite there but if they're like i want to get some jolt cola well i i I did happen to name the uh the the 7-eleven but other than that um so that's a i picked a bad example but other than that if they want to go to the occult bookstore i say what's the name of that occult bookstore they tell me the name who's the owner they tell me the owner where is it they label it on the map so it's it definitely takes all this burden off me Nice. And then I get to play in the game just as much Does as they do. Does that slow it down, though, because they have to, like, stop and think about it? Or is it just really quick, rapid no. fire, like, whatever first... I mean, is there a time limit? Like, hey, you have, the, just, you have five seconds We're, to say the name. It actually, I think... I, I feared that, too. I think because it doesn't feel as, like, written down like a novel like D&D does, because it feels more like an improv, um, like, on stage thing, uh-huh. it's like it's like the light shines on you and... and you just say the first name that comes to your mind and that's it. That's canon. Got it. You know, and we also lean really heavily into eighties references. So the occult bookstore in our town is owned by Ray stands. That's <laughs> um, perfect. So yeah, it's like, um, I love that. And because of this, we have gone on this wild adventure and <laughs> there was definitely a point in time where I 
had to write down some facts about the town just because I'm that person that's like, I have to have an, an overarching narrative kind of thing here. I, I just need a big secret that's going on in the town. Even though they told me what the big secret was at the beginning, I made it fit into a story somehow. Once I did that, then I was able to like contribute even more and like make up really wild stuff that they were doing. And I mean, it's seriously just been crazy. They've met a real life vampire. They, um, They've done some very Scooby-Doo antics, like they've solved the mystery of the missing, you know, pets from the dog show. Um, but they've also interacted with like the FBI. There have been plenty of like flashlight scenes. Um, uh, I don't, I don't want to give too much away, away, but I, uh, they, they've fought ghost Nazis. It's, and this is like really for the most part. I mean because we established so many facts in the beginning and, and as we go along and because we have this map that they keep adding to um, it, 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 it just allows it to get crazier and crazier and crazier. And because it's not a thing that I had to sit down and prep for like in D and I'm not attached to my darlings here. So I'm not feeling like, Hey, if you don't pick up the key in this town from this elf, then I've got to rework my whole story. You know, so for me, it's like, hey, I think of something cool. I just throw it in there just like they do. That's cool. And that's see, it this, all. I love this because yeah. this is we started with my sort of consternation about how I was introduced to this. And we end with kind of like this is this sounds exactly like what I had that is, wanted. The I know. Time. And see, that's why we told everybody at the start of this episode how heavily we script this, because this was all planned. That's right. <laughs> we came. full. No, it up. does feel like it was very ordered. And I won't I won't get into the details of this, but. I am also playing a D&D flavored game of fate with um, my niece and a group of her friends. So tween girls, like from ages nine to 13. And because we're doing the fate rules, they get to roll four dice every time I say roll your dice, you know? So it's not like there's, I mean, there is that sort of dice envy thing of like you're in D&D and the fighter gets to like make three attacks. So they're rolling all these dice when it's their turn and you're the cleric. You just roll one die or something, you know? Mm -hmm. So every time they get to roll a handful of dice and they get to talk about their, I didn't push them too hard on learning the rules. I would just talk to them in game about like, how do you want to do this? Do you want to be sneaky or do you want to be clever? But now they're getting it. And I've given, like, I gave them the sheets after we were several sessions into it. So now they're saying things like, I'm going to be forceful about this. And I get a plus three on my forceful. Nice. And it is just so fun. And because it's not so heavily scripted, if they take a wild left turn like they did last week and I have to deal with in a couple hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have to prepare too much for that. Because I can be assured, like, well, once we get into that cave with the snow leopards, they're going to take another hard left turn, and I'm not going to see it coming. Yeah. So we're all improvising in the moment. And it really, I mean, I really just can't say enough good things about Fate. It is, it is my favorite. And you can literally play it with index cards and four dice. And that's, that to me is like such a huge thing. Now, you can uh, definitely like explore doing the maps and things like we're doing in our kids on bikes game, which we call pubescence on velocipedes. Um, <laughs> But you don't have to have all those things. You know, you're not oh as D and D is very focused on the the gizmos and stuff that come afterwards. You know, I got to have my miniature, and we've got to have all these maps. And you know, we play in a game, my big D and D game. We play with 3D models. So there's like, you know, my friend Chris is printing 3D landscape for us to play on, and it's awesome. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, there's preparation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And fate is like you can play it in a park in an afternoon. You know. And yeah, that's that's liter literally where I wanted to deliver you, which was to talk about like sort of these different models of games and say, this is the one I think you would enjoy the most. I love it. 
That's a great wow. And I'm pl- what a great yeah, journey. Yeah. What a great little. Sort I'm of- playing uh, pubescence on velocipedes with uh, our our friend Justin in in Denver. Oh, so okay. Well, yeah. real quick, let's touch on that. Is I'm sure it's not as fun as in person, but are you are you guys figuring out a way to make remote play, you know, via yeah. Zoom or whatever it might be, work or worthwhile? I should say. There are tons of tools for this, um, and the biggest one that everyone knows uh, it, once you get into it is called Roll20.net. Okay, and it allows you to have a you're sharing a map. You've got a chat box right there. The chat box allows you to whisper to other players. So that the whole group can't see it, but also to whisper to the GM. Um, it allows roll 20 allows you to roll the dice right there. It has the character sheets for like dozens of dozens of games. Um, so we were able to say, Hey, I'm playing a fate accelerated game and it just made, you know, made four character sheets for me. So they don't have to keep up with all that paper. Yeah. But I do miss, I mean, one of the specific reasons I wanted to start playing D and D was to have another analog hobby. Cause I felt like I've just got to unplug and the the cur- you know the lasting curse of this pandemic is that I I can't be analog in almost anything like mm. I've got to be online all the all the time. Mm-hmm. So it there are definitely tools out there. I'll shout out the what what I think is great for DMs um, specifically for like a Dungeons and Dragons type game is this new website called Owlbear.rodeo. Owlbear. <laughs> whoa, whoa, so, whoa, 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 whoa! Yeah, yeah. Okay, Dot see. Rodeo is a top-level domain, by the way. <laughs> Owlbear, A O W L, and then Bear, yes. B A A R. Dot Rodeo. B yeah, B E A R. Yeah, like the like. There's a monster called the Owlbear in D D. Okay. Okay. And this is Dot Rodeo. It it is very old school tabletopy. Got it. So you you can upload your own tokens and stuff but it's just such a quick way to say hey here's our battle map and i drag over one of their default tokens that looks like a monster here's your monster here's you what do you want to do and in roll 20 it has so many features that it's you know you can turn on lighting for different rooms and measure distances and stuff like that and you can do some of that in owlbear but owlbear just lets you start playing really quickly whereas roll 20 is again like you've as the dm you've got to prep Uh um Hey, can I ask but you, yeah. so, so real quick, and one more sort of, and this may be a longer answer, and if not, just try to try to keep it concise. Um, is there yeah. ever a game, and I think the last game you mentioned is probably this, but like, is there ever, are there more common games where the DM or GM can be uh, fluid, meaning like you can be GM on, you know, two games, and then it's like, you know, I'm going to step aside and let, uh, you know, Sarah take over. Is, is that a thing? Do you see that evolving that way, or is it, does it really just need to be one person consistently? In some of these newer, I, you know, newer sort of honestly, I don't have experience with that, and that I would, I will actually definitely do some investigation into what is the best system to trade the game master position because I've, I've read that in a few. I know the guy that wrote Blades in the Dark. He has a new game called Agon, A G O N, and I believe in that you swap the role, but it's much less like adventure. And you're you're playing a role that's specifically about a combat event. You are all it's 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 meant to be like you're all Greek heroes, um, making a tribute to your gods. So you like sail to this island and you challenge you know whoever's the toughest person. And so you're you're role playing in this, but you're you're kind of proscribed in what you're doing. So you you know, I, and I think that game is specifically built to change the game master each new island Mm -hmm. but i just don't know of a lot of systems that are like built with that in mind and that said i bet there are 
I bet there are games that are built with that in mind to make it an easier. I can see that happening in fate for sure. You know, I can there are see. Some, I mean, the, my point with this is there are some people who are incredibly talented dungeon masters or game masters. I'll just, I'll keep using GM like you do. So there's, yeah. there's people that are incredibly talented at it and good at it. And it's like, Oh, they have to, it has to be, it has to be, you know, Bob has to be my, or Todd, Todd has to be my, my, my GM. But I just kind of feel like the, especially with some of these more improv sort of, uh, yeah. you know, adjacent kinds of games and they're a little easier and they're, you know, you can kind of, it's, it's less cruft, you know, and just more playing. Like I would imagine yeah. those would be more fun if, you know, every episode, quote unquote, every time you guys play, like there's a different host, yeah. um, almost like with a TV show that's, you know, there's a template, but every director, yeah on an episode kind of brings a little bit something different. Like, you know, Taika Waititi's um, yeah. Mandalorian episodes are a little different than John Favreau's for good reason. And so like, I almost imagine, um, cause there is, there is so much connective tissue between really great TV series and, and really great um, uh, RPGs. Yeah. I just would imagine it would be kind of, that should be an ideal that people, you know, in short of having just like that, just killer GM. Um, yeah. I just, I would love to see that evolve too. That'd be kind of fun. And I, I would say I would say it is I would say it's very easy to do that in both Fate and the Blades in the Dark games. Yeah. And and one of the things that like Scum and Villainy was honestly the first Blades in the Dark based game I got. I got that first and then then got Blades in the Dark. So um one of the things both of them do but Scum and Villainy got my attention right away in emphasizing this game is an episode of a TV show. Yeah. Yeah. You you plan you plan your score, then you have your score. That's act two. And then act three is your downtime. And so that's when you try, you, <laughs> this is such a great mechanic. You in, indulge in your vice in order to reduce your stress. Oh. So you ha you're supposed to role play that out. That's where it does become more of like a board game where you're, you're rolling dice and it feels like, oh, we've got to, we've got to do, you feel like you've got a checklist of things I got to do, but mm -hmm. it, it can become more of a, uh, you know, role playing opportunity. Um, but yeah, I can see, I can see both of those games fate and uh the fortune of the dark games becoming like yeah okay next week in next week's episode the person that gm this time is going to be a player and someone else is going to take over nice um yeah man i i love thinking about that because i'll i'll definitely do more investigating on that because it is so intimidating to be to want to play dungeons and dragons and think we've got to find one of our friends who's willing to do literally 20 times the homework that everyone else has to do. Yeah, I mean, right. I, I don't know. It's like you, you just feel like every adventure you pick up says, please read this adventure from start to finish before you start playing. And you're like, oh, my God, it's 400 pages long. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh. you know, even if it's a 20 page adventure, that can be daunting to like, I got to read this and I'm trying to keep all these details in my head before I go back and start it over, even though we're only going to get two pages through it. You know, it's like, dude, that's a lot of prep. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. fortunately there are tons of RPGs that do not require that prep. And thus I think are much more fun for the game master and the players, honestly. So mm. I just, if you're a, if you're in dungeons and dragons and like just a quick example, you get knocked down to zero hit points. Okay. So the next round comes around. This is the, you know, one of the few opportunities in the game where everyone's rolling dice every round you're in a battle. Someone gets knocked down to zero hit points. They're unconscious. Their next turn comes around. They just have to roll to see if they don't die. Mm -hmm. Well, in fate there's a mechanic that's like if you see that you could possibly be knocked out on the last you know on the next turn um because you've taken all your stress you can choose to leave the action 
And not only do you get to narrate how you leave the action, but you, <laughs> but you earn a fate point. Oh, I love it. Now, if you don't do that and you stay in the action and get taken out, then the GM and specifically the NPCs that they are controlling gets to choose how you get taken out. So it can be terrible, you know? So it's like, it becomes, it becomes a much a better storytelling device, which is like, you're not just like at zero and you have to sit there and like roll one dumb die and see if you pop up with one hit point. It's like an opportunity to tell more of the story. And that's, that's just what makes fate such a great, you know, game for that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So. Love it. Wow. Woo. Oh, this I, I got more out of this and not that I was not looking forward to it, but I got more out of this than I anticipated I would because I just didn't realize I think a lot of people are in my boat, right? You know, people yes. who are but for by every definition should love RPGs in this way, but I think because of other circumstances or more likely lack of knowledge cuz it's yes. you, even if you walk into a comic store that has a lot of RPG and tabletop stuff going on, it's hard to just like where do I even begin? Like where do I even start? Yeah. And I think having kind of a guide like this to kind of just keep you updated on like where things are and what's available and like most things in this day and age, the decentralization and sort of the yep. uh, the creative commonsization, if you will, of these things, I think has been a really good thing, and it's just allowed more more creativity, more variations, more experimentation. That's the biggest kind of the most the most uh, fun thing I've heard. It's just there's a lot of experimenting going on, a lot of kind of iteration, which is cool. I I also yeah. can't wait for because um, I know we've talked a little bit too about there are some great podcasts that are built on playing the games in real time um, or designing games to be, you know, podcast uh, yeah. sort of enjoyable. I am looking forward to the day where all of this new media, all of this kind of innovation, everything kind of comes together into a singularity, if you will, of RPG where it's maybe there's like a digital component and then like you're there in person too. But then there's also like, you can, you know, you can have somebody, you know, in, in Singapore, you know, like, like, um, you know, videoed in and they're playing, but there's, you know, their versions like a little different, just having yeah. kind of this confluence of all this stuff. Cause while I appreciate that you can do something with just index cards and dice and, and have a great time, I want to see how you can add on to that without making it. Cause their temptation is to, is to go back to where we were, where everything is so convoluted and so complicated that technology yeah. just makes that worse. Technology just adds on more interesting, engaging elements, but it's still a simple experience. I think that's, yeah, that would be amazing to see. Yeah, and I, you know, again, like I, D and D is is probably my second favorite game, and one of the things that's great about it is once people do get into it, it is a shared language. Yeah, and you could pretty much drop someone into any setting in D and D, and they're going to understand how to play. Now you might have some homebrew rules or something, but it's basically the same, and that is is one of those like beautifully global things of you could have players in Singapore and, you know, <laughs> Melbourne and California, and you're all playing the same game online on discord and roll 20. And it makes sense. And people are doing that. Um, and with those more homebrew, like the fate thing of like all the collaboration, that's probably hard to do without close friends, you know? Okay. Um, so it, it may lead to a more satisfying experience, but it's, it's rarer. Yeah. Um, yeah. But all, I mean, I'm I'm so glad you got out of it because I knew, having known a little bit about your exposure to it, and and then my deep exposure to multiple games during the pandemic, I knew we had something. I was like, I know I have something to tell you, and so I I knew this would be a good episode to like lay all that down. <laughs> so I'm yeah, really glad yeah. we got to do this. Perfect.
Perfect. Well, wonderful. Well, if you want to hear more of our episodes across a variety of topics, um, we've we've collected quite a few episodes over the years, and we're actually we're in the process of creating some playlists and some organization to help help you figure out what's what. But we've got episodes about comics, movies, um, gaming like this, general chit chat, all kinds of stuff. You can go to panelism.inc. That's panelism panelism.inc. And then that is also our Instagram handle at panelism.inc on Instagram. Um, and then we're going to have, I think more, more fun stuff coming, uh, as well as we kind of get back into the swing of things. I, it's been, you know, it's just, it's, it's 2020. If you're listening in the future, it's just, it's yeah. that year we've been sort of suffering from a bit of a malaise. I'm, I'm coming out of it as we get closer to autumn. I'm like, I'm feeling my, my creative juice is flowing again, which is good. Well, we've talked about that before about how, how our creative juices ebb and flow and, uh, Fortunately, I think for the podcast, they have ebbed and flowed uh, in in sync on a lot mm-hmm. of times. And for me, especially dealing with being at home all the time during the the pandemic, um, the freaking weather is such a factor that I, yep. I, you know, I know in the winter it's a factor, but seriously, the last month has been so miserable in my house, you know, because it's California. I'm close to the beach. I don't have air conditioning. I don't have insulation. So when it's 95 outside, it's 105 inside. Oh, Jesus. And I'm, you know, I got fans on me all the time. It's like, I'm just uncomfortable and I don't want to record. And so yeah. I feel that same thing. Sorry, sorry to uh, whimper right there. But I, I feel the same thing. Like, we're going into autumn. I'm ready to make podcasts and other stuff. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And just, and, and just full full disclosure we've been i mean this is the summer of the wildfire everywhere in california where oh you are gosh. in colorado where and i am you too yeah and we've had some pretty i mean just two three weeks of just awful like you know hazy skies with brown green colors no no clouds you can't go outside you can't open your windows finally last friday oh that broke and now it's just been beautiful like you know 75 degree days with you know just beautiful breezes and stuff so i'm weather is such a huge part of my my sanity and i'm just glad to have be heading back into a place where it's like I, I can you know breathe again and enjoy my day yeah. instead of adding one more thing to the list of 2020. Anyway, it's been a pleasure, sir. I'm glad we had this chat. Yes. I'm glad I've heard more it about RPGs. Uh, I'll see you next time. Red, purple, green.